word of God from the book of Ephesians. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing? Father, we um, need your spirit this morning. This is a hard passage, Lord. And so we just ask you, Father, to um, quiet our hearts, um, make us tender in a new way. We realize that you are the fount of all wisdom. And we just, uh, we need that wisdom. So bless us, watch over us, um, direct us in this very complex and difficult, mysterious passage, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. So if you're a visitor, and I see that there are a few, we're really delighted that you are here. Um, you have caught us in the middle of a sermon series on this ancient letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a bunch of churches in the city of Ephesus. And so we've been going chapter by chapter, and this morning we get to uh, the middle of chapter 5, and he's going to direct us on our behavior and how to live, and he's going to say really mysterious words to us, as you just heard. Um, very specifically, the ethic that we're going to learn about is marriage. And the way he's going to talk about it is very different than what we have been enculturated to believe um, in, this, uh, in this 21st century. Um, our passage contains actually verses that the outside world cites to scoff at Christians, honestly, to show that we're regressive. But here's the thing. Life in the kingdom of Jesus, it's always upside down. I mean, Jesus is always calling us to something that's opposite of our intuitions. Uh, Jesus tells us to accept suffering with joy, to love our enemies, to give away our possessions, to make ourselves vulnerable by pursuing the vulnerable. It all seems upside down and so counterintuitive with marriage the teachings of the kingdom are predictably showing once again an upside-down kingdom. And I'm going to ask you to hear these words and embrace them with your whole heart. So let's start as, as a, in this introduction. Let me just start at the beginning to kind of on-ramp here. In the very beginning 
uh, when God made man and woman, he made them as a couple, and he put them in a garden. And the idea was that this man and this woman together would participate in God's mission to draw out and to cultivate a great or even greater beauty in God's world. And the whole purpose of their union, of their marriage, was not about fulfilling the, the, their dreams of happiness. It was about joining God in his mission to bring out beauty and to extend like the fences of that beauty, to keep pushing beauty outwards and God's love outwards. For those who, um, for whatever reason, don't get married, even they are going to be blessed by this institution uh, and the canopy of love that marriage extends, right? Marriages are not designed for their own welfare. They're designed for the welfare of others, to take happiness and blessing to others. It's a mechanism of that taking, right? And the marriage of Adam and Eve, it, it provides for us a paradigm to understand our own marriages. Marriages exist for, to serve the very mission of God. Now, even with these sort of opening thoughts, I know, and I know that there are people probably already that feel defeated. How can my marriage bring happiness and flourishing to others when I don't even feel it for myself, Lord? Like some of us come from horrible divorces, maybe multiple divorces. Many marriages just need healings because our marriages are really painful. We've kind of given up on hope in marriage because, quite honestly, it's not a place of rest and joy, and we're wounded of our marriages. I get it. This passage, as we just heard, it opens in verse 21 with this canopy of interpretation that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this mutual submission is, is this hermeneutic, this key that's going to help us understand. And this is such a big deal because if that mutual submission is not the normative practice that interprets the teaching for husbands and wives that we're about to look at, then this passage can actually be used to reinforce skewed power dynamics for exploitation and for abuse. See, Paul is assuming that both parties are giving themselves up for one another. And so if that's not happening, then it can actually allow for one party to take advantage of the other. And that's really scary. It can make you feel really, or actually make you really vulnerable to serious harm. Listen, you guys, we all, and we all want happy marriages, but we have no idea how to get there. With wisdom and humility, we really need this passage more than ever to baptize our imaginations about what marriage could be. You know, every time I go to the local gas station, I go straight to the door and I start pushing and then I look up and it says pool, right? Uh, like that's, a, that's a metaphor for marriage. Like it's, uh, we're backwards. And it's not just us, you guys. It's like the whole Western world. You know, sociologists of every flavor are in agreement about one thing, that the, the social decay, the vices that we see manifest in our culture find a common root. Failed marriages. Poverty, drug addiction, all those things, sociologists see correlation with failed marriages. Listen, if, if half the airplanes 
flying out of Denver International were crashing, would you get on an airplane? No. You drive. No wonder we are jaded. Now, before I continue, I want to say a word to singles. You know, I don't know, roughly 60%, if you include children, I don't know, 60 or 70% of the people here are not married. Um, So why take an entire Sunday to talk about this? Well, mostly we've just been going through the book of Ephesians, and this is kind of where we are. But, but also, some of you are single for a season. Um, some of you are single for a reason, like a conviction. But here's what I want you to hear. This sermon's for you. It's for you, too. See, everyone in here was born because two people got together. And maybe those two people were married, maybe they weren't. But their relationship whatever it was, deeply socialized you and has formed you for better or for worse. And so I'm hoping that this sermon, even for you, will help you to interpret the strengths and the weaknesses that you witnessed in the home that you grew up in. It'll, it'll help you interpret your own heart, your own formation. There are patterns in your life that exist because of your parents' marriage. And if one day you desire to get married, you need to listen to this sermon because Whatever is in your heart that is not transformed will be transferred to your children or the the most closest relationships you have. So this morning, we're going to walk through this passage sequentially. First, we're going to look at Paul's exhortation to wives and then to husbands. So let's, let's start with his exhortation to women, which begins in verse 22. Verse 22 does happen after verse 21, that we need to submit to one another. And then he says, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Well, if there's ever been a cultural non-starter, that's it, right? You know, one lady said to me, Ronnie, submit is what I tell my dog to do. That command is demeaning. And I, I like, I completely understand her suspicion. Like, if that word means what she thinks it means, then she has every right to be upset. So I, work, I recognize I got my work cut out for me this morning, right? Let me say this. I think that if we can understand this text correctly, both the traditionalist and the progressivist are going to feel challenged by the Bible. And even those who've actually spurned and have given up on the institution of marriage, who maybe are just into hookup culture because it's just easier, even they're going to feel challenged. Now let me, as I begin to even teach verse 22, I want to offer a very serious warning to men. So listen up, men. First, this passage speaks to husbands and wives specifically, not men and women generally. Men are not somehow given carte blanche authority over half the population. And it's crazy when the Bible's used that way. Men, if you have ever used this verse to hurt, dominate, manipulate a woman to get your way, I want you to know that I am praying against you. Fiercely, I'm praying against you. And the session of this church is doing that. This is a serious issue. You'll see God face to face one day, and he'll want to know how you used this verse you'll be given an account for the ways that you've misused the Bible to exploit women. So be warned. As a pastor, 
I am called to protect women and daughters, uh, our, our, our wives and daughters from predators. Even if they come in here spouting out Bible verses. You know, I have three daughters, right? Who, who had to give my life up for? So I take this responsibility very seriously. Now listen, I know this word submit sounds offensive, and and perhaps the word submit has been vandalized to such a degree that it's lost its usage. I mean, you know how words and meanings kind of float over time? Maybe that's what's happened. Today, I'll try to do my best to kind of uncover its biblical usage. Here's the thing. The word submit, it should be offensive, but not for the reasons that you think. This word subverts our idea of the whole purpose and trajectory of marriage that's given to us by our culture. See, listen, remember, marriage is not for you. So, beginning in the case of wives here, wives are called to put the needs of their husbands above their own. All right, I'm not helping yet, I know, right? Hang on, sisters, I'll get there. So, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is a different letter. He's going to say to the church, he's going to say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves and let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now that verse, Paul is saying, that is for all people, all Christians everywhere. That's the way that Christians are supposed to live. Right? So C.S. Lewis is going to say, you're not supposed to think less of yourself. You're supposed to think of yourself less, right? So in our text in Ephesians, Paul is applying to marriage what is supposed to be true of all Christians. But he's saying, sister, this is how we're supposed to act with all Christians. But be especially careful to do this with your husbands. That's what Paul's saying. He's, he's saying, give them special priority voluntarily yield love and loyalty to your husband. Have a posture of trust towards his leadership. And why would you do this? Well, there's two reasons. First, the Bible just says it very uncomfortably and plainly to submit, right? But what does that word even mean? And we need to think about this because our understanding of this word has e- is either shaped by culture or it's been shaped by our background. If you read the commentaries, they will all tell you the Greek word submit comes from this word in the, uh, that is, hoop, it's a compound Greek word, hupotasso. And so when you put those words together, the word literally translated is to arrange under. To arrange under. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to use the same root word describing Jesus submitting to his Father. He is arranging all that he is, all of his gifts, talents, his very life, for the glory of his Father and for the flourishing of the world. Now, with that framework in mind, wives are then called to take, the, take all of their myriads of gifts and talents— and arrange them in service to her husband for the sake of flourishing. And so, verse 23 and 24, the text makes this analogy. Look, verse, we'll start 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, that headship language is addressing how husbands are uniquely responsible for their wives 
which is different than what we see with Adam in the garden, right? So Eve gets into some mischief, right? Eats the fruit. Adam's standing right by. God finds out, goes to Adam, says, hey, what's up? And Adam says, yeah, yeah, it's not me, it's her, right? He is giving up responsibility. So headship is undoing that and putting responsibility back on the man. What headship is not, what is not, is not the bestowal of some mysterious tiebreaker vote privilege. When when a husband and wife disagree, there's just like this tiebreaker vote privilege, right? Marriages aren't democratic entities. They are reciprocal, earnest listening. You know, it's interesting that the Puritans, who are not known at all for being like progressive, they would say, or many of them would say, if a husband and wife can't agree, then no decision is to be made, right? It's fascinating. Let's continue. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So wives are to husbands as the church is to Christ. And to understand that analogy, we've got to ask, well, how does the church submit to Christ? It's by arranging her gifts and talents in service to Christ for the sake of flourishing. Like, isn't that what we're all doing here, right? Now, here's why this is so surprising. And Tim Keller writes this so succinctly in his book, Meaning for Marriage. He's saying, if this is true, and it is, then wives, you are called to express your gifts, not suppress them, right? So biblical submission does not mean that you check your brain in at the door. It doesn't mean that you leave your rights at the door. Submission is an expression, not a suppression of your gifts for the glory and the flourishing of the other. So biblical submission is not demeaning like a command to a dog. You don't stop everything you're doing and leave your happy disposition and just do whatever your master says. That's not what the Bible envisions. It can't mean that, right? This word again is going to appear in 1 Peter 5, 5, where, where young men are called to submit to older men. Like, what do you think that means? Of course, you honor authority, but that doesn't mean you stop being who you are right? Biblical submission expects, wives, that you will challenge and correct and even help your husband to change and grow, to help him to become all that God wants him to become for flourishing. You know, when wives hear the submit to your husbands in everything, they're like, well, what's everything? And like where our brains go, is that it's talking about you absolutely have to say yes to every request from my husband, especially romantic encounters, right? And that's where our brains go. No, that's not what this passage is talking about. Wives, you, you can say no. Men, don't use the Bible in that way. Don't do that. I would love to explore the subtleties of romantic expression for marriage in another day, but this isn't the passage for it. All right. Everything is about all of your God-given talents, resources, your heart, arranging those things under him for his flourishing, seeking his welfare. It's not biblical submission to allow someone to go unchallenged into abuse and addiction, right? A wife is to take all of her gifts and intelligence for the glory of her husband 
which will often challenge him deeply to change. And let me take this one step further. If the wife disregards this and sets aside her talents and gifts and doesn't arrange them in service to her husband, not only will she herself suffer, but her, her husband will suffer too. See, husbands need their wives to do this. If a husband denies a wife this role, he will turn into a pain for everyone in his life, especially his children. And I've seen this a thousand times. A man becomes domineering in his marriage, transforms into this emotionally immature buffoon who's alienated from his family. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. Wives, you will have this impulse to control your husband. The text is not giving you permission to see yourself as superior to him with your talents. You're called to adopt a posture of trust in his leadership, not to control him. Help, but not control. You know, um, Amanda shares a story about a conversation that she had with her counselor, and she gave me permission to share this story. The counselor asked Amanda, she said, uh, Amanda, what are, what are your goals for your marriage? And uh, Amanda stayed silent, and then she finally spoke up, and she says, my only goal is to change, my, to change Ronnie. <laughs> now, when she said it out loud, she realized, like, how foolish and harmful this is. She says, she says I'm not only damaging Ronnie, I'm damaging myself. She, gets, she continues, she says, it's not only that she can't change Ronnie, she can't change me, but even if I could, she said, I would only change Ronnie into my image, which is futile and foolish. So what are your goals then, sisters, for your marriage? What is your posture towards your husband? Is it one of loving trust as you serve God? The second reason why wives are called to arrange their gifts in service to their husbands is that the text says, wives submit to your own husbands, and then it continues, as to the Lord. See, this is less about your husband as it is about the Lord. You know, I, um, I can imagine a woman having an internal dialogue saying, hey, I tried that, and it doesn't work. Listen, what we're doing here is not a recipe to make it work. This is about the blessing of obeying God. The purpose of our marriage, contrary to what society says, is not for our personal happiness. Our marriages are to please the Lord. Marriage is not for you or for your husband. Marriage is to serve the very mission of God, to, to take love outwards. And it's uncomfortably God-centered. Do you see both the beauty and the burden of this? See, listen, you were designed to give your life away. And ironically, the chief enemy of happiness is self-centeredness. Your marriage is supposed to be the place where you give, not take. You know, when Amanda and I were first married about almost 20 years ago now, um, from the first day of our wedding, she cried every single day for 28 days straight. Amanda tells this with a little bit of a chuckle. It still stings a little bit for me. 
But I was wounding her, right? I was emotionally broken. My vision of marriage was so hurtful. And she could have just, she could have crushed me and just checked out. But instead, she, you know, God invited her to start praying for me each day. And through tears and anger, but with hope, she would do it. She chose to live out how this passage closes in verse 33, that let a wife see that she respects her husband. Like she gave me an honor that I didn't deserve. She didn't become a pushover. She gently, patiently expressed her gifts for my benefit and invited me into reconsidering my emotional life. She pointed out things in my life that needed to be redeemed. Can you see, sisters, the dignity in that role? She arranged her gifts to make me a man that I never could have become without her. You see, submission is not suppression, it's expression. It's the loving expression of gifts and service to a husband. Your respect, your role is powerful. Husbands literally cannot become all that they're meant to be without you. You have a place of incredible privilege. I, re- I listened uh, to one of the, I think it, um, it's a pastor in Florida, mentions this older pastor, his name's Evie Hill. So I went on YouTube to look this sermon up that was mentioned. You can watch it yourself. But Evie Hill pastors a very successful black gospel church in, uh, in California. And when I got to the YouTube, it turns out that it, wasn't, it was a sermon, but it was also a eulogy at the funeral of his wife. And in this eulogy, he describes his wife as, come, as coming from a very well-to-do home, very wealthy and educated. Her father, who was a college president, um, did very well, and they lived in a very big house, and she was grew up being able to travel all over the world, and really she had everything. And as Evie Hill explains, this precious woman gave that up and chose to marry a lowly black preacher. That's what he says. In the early days of their marriage, one day he came home, and it had been a hard day of work, and the house was dim. His wife had put up candles everywhere in every room, and she made this candlelight dinner. And he thought to himself, all right, this is going to be a romantic night, you know? He's getting excited, but then he goes into the bedroom to change clothes, and he flips the light switch, and nothing came on. And so he returns to his wife and says, we had our electricity cut off, didn't we? And she starts to cry. Sweetheart, you work so hard. You're so dedicated. You're doing everything you can for your family, but we don't have enough money and I couldn't pay the bill this month. Now, Evie Hill's crying, telling this story. His wife says, my baby, my baby. And and Hill says, my wife could have ruined me, right? She could have said, I was raised by men who took care of their families, paid bills. I've never been in the dark. I've never been in the cold. He says, she could have ruined me. But what she says is, let's have dinner by candlelight. So Evie Hill at the funeral of his wife says, this woman changed my life forever. Do you see the power and the dignity 
of a wife's role in her marriage. God's calling on your life is beautiful. It's life-giving, and it's particular. Now, there's more I can say. There's entire books that have been written on this. I realize I'm not saying everything there is to say, but i got to get to the men in the room. So I feel like the sermon could almost end there because I've gone so long, but please be patient with me today. So we're going to now get to the men, which starts in verse 25. Now, you know, when people want to get snarky with the Bible, they'll cite these verses and say, "Uh, my goodness, if that's what the Bible says about being a woman, everyone should want to be a man, right? And I say, hold up. That's not that easy. We need to read carefully. When, um, you know, when modern people read these verses, and women, understandably, specifically, they find it controversial. Uh, Most people tend to dismiss these texts by saying, well, what Paul is saying was just kind of normal in the patriarchal world of the first century, right? Did you know that in the first century, our passage was equally, if not more controversial than it is even today? But it wasn't the women who found it controversial. It was the men. And let me explain. What historians will tell you is that in the first century, women had very few rights, right? Men had wives for children, but often had mistresses on the side. Additionally, because of the Roman pagan practices, it often included these sort of encounters with temple prostitutes, and they were free to do that. So in our text... In that context, Paul says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This verse was horrifying for men because they understood the intense sacrifice that this requires. In the same way that women find these verses uncomfortable today, men in the ancient world absolutely rejected Christianity because of these same verses. Strangely, it was women in the first century that heard these verses and their hearts exploded with joy and rest. I mean, these verses enchanted the imagination of women and shaped the expectations that they had for their husbands. It's not that these verses remove authority from the man, but it reorients how authority is used. Men are called to use authority for the benefit of of their wives, not for their own interests. As we established earlier with the analogy of Christ and the church, men are called to be the head of their wives. Now, what does this mean? Let me keep fleshing this out because we, like, we need to ask, right? Does this mean that men just get to be the boss of their wives and tell them what to do? Does this mean that men just make all the decisions? Dudes, does this mean you can just like come home after work to a wife who's like strung out with three kids and a colicky baby and demand dinner and a romantic encounter and the remote control because you just work so hard? Is that what this means? No, of course not. When the Bible says that the man is the head of the woman, it's speaking about servant leadership. My experience is that there's two sort of sinful responses to this notion of headship. Again, there's no dissolution of authority. If you remove authority, husbands will hurt their wives. It's just like a parent. If a parent surrenders authority in the life of their child, their child will get hurt. 
The question here is not the existence of authority, it's how authority is used. So on one hand, you know, being the head is misinterpreted as being the boss who just controls everything, right? A husband foolishly will believe that he can complete God's mission without the gifts, talents, and intelligence of his wife. It's too bad. On the other hand, a husband might foolishly believe that being the boss, that he's the boss, which means according to the pecking order, he doesn't need to do anything at all. Because if you're at the top, you have servants beneath you who can do the work, right? So in the first case, men become controlling. And in the second case, men become extremely passive. Wives do everything until they're completely exhausted and understandably resentful. According to the scriptures, both of those responses, controlling or passive, are an affront to what the blueprint of God for husbands. Men are called to be servant leaders like Christ, and both of those words are important. Men are leaders in the sense that they're initiators. Look at verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So what this means is that men are supposed to be initiators of the spiritual life of the family. Like husbands, pray over your families. Even if they're simple prayers and not eloquent. Brothers, like your voice is powerful. Men, make sure that your family goes to church. Let let your children see that following Jesus is dad's idea, not just the result of mom nagging. Husbands, Get out in front, organize, prioritize your family's spiritual life. Now listen, this does not mean that the man knows the Bible better than the woman. In fact, in many cases, our wives are way more skillful with the text and the Bible than men. And they're more in tune to the spiritual realities. So it doesn't mean that the man has to be the Bible study leader of the family. Like even in my own home, and I have advanced degrees in the Bible... Even still, Amanda is more active in the actual teaching of family devotions, right? Because she's good at it. (laughs) But that's not the point. The point is my children see how I initiate and I set up structures for it. They see my enthusiasm. The execution of family family spiritual life, that can be negotiated between between the couple based on their gifting. But it doesn't mean that the husband is passive, He always sets the table. He sets the table. Next thing, verse 25, the text says that Jesus gave himself up for his bride. So he took her sin upon himself. So what what could that mean for husbands? It means that husbands are leaders in repentance. It means that we soften our voice first. It means that we break the cold war and move tenderly toward our wives without demanding our rights. It means that you don't demand justice before you start loving and serving her. It means that if you have a fight and 99% of the blame is on your wife, you still move forward first. You die for her. Now, as a word of technique, I wouldn't lead out like that and say, baby, I know you're only one, I'm only 1% to blame, but I'm sorry. Like, don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. Just say, I don't want to fight. I don't want to win a fight. I want to win you. You're worth dying for. 
Paul says, husbands, love your wives. When he says that, he's not talking about emotions or chemistry between the two of you. He's talking about choices, right? To love is to incarnate a behavior, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's going to show us the, 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 the form of love. He's going to say love is patient and it's kind and it doesn't envy or boast. Love isn't arrogant or rude. It, it, do, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Love doesn't just rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see how drastically different that is than controlling or being passive? So we said that servant leadership means leadership in spiritual life and in repentance. But it also means to lead in providing well, listen closely. Most men, I don't know if that's true, a lot of men, as I've experienced, think that their only job is to provide financially. And then they wash their hands of all other responsibilities. And I know that wives would take less money if they could get more of us. And our children, too. Husbands often hide behind their work so we want the benefits of being the boss without any of the nitty-gritty responsibility of being a servant. That just happens, and it's too bad. While that abuse does happen, even still, men ought to take the responsibility for providing for their home. Listen, because I know where your brain's already going. This does not mean that the husband has to be the breadwinner of the home. That's not what that means. If your wife is a brain surgeon and she can help bless the world with her vocation, then organize your life to help her to do that, right? Like if that's the case, your wife's skills and talents are compensated better than yours, then figure out a way to employ her gifts. Like that's okay, right? I'm only, it's only saying that if, if and when if you do that, let that be a premeditated and prayerful decision not an abdication of responsibility. And so you reassure her, like, honey, don't feel the pressure of having to work in order to maintain some socioeconomic status. Like, if, if I have to wait tables, I will do that. If we need to cut our budget, I'll do that. I will do whatever to take care of the family. I'm not afraid of working humble jobs, right? You provide by thinking through, the, through that conversation and understanding your wife's talents and gifts in comparison to yours and, make, and, and, and figure it out what makes sense for you. But lead out in thinking through that. And lastly, Christian husbands are called to stay not, and not check out when things get hard. Paul says, verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to your wives. Husbands, commit. Covenant over chemistry. 
Jesus never forsakes his bride. The bride of Christ is never looking at Jesus as if he's grumpy, wondering, I wonder if he's going to remove his love from me. No, like the love of Jesus as the bridegroom, his love is steady. And so it should be with husbands. Even when your wife disappoints you, you stay. Be reliable. Like, did Jesus' wife disappoint him? Yeah, tried to, had him killed. He stays. He always moves towards his bride. Like, how many women and children just need someone to stay, even when they're a mess? And just like Christ, we must initiate to restore the relationship. In this way, even though we're wounded ourselves, we become these wounded healers in the lives of our wives. How? By staying. And there's this young couple there in their 20s. The wife had developed a tumor on her face, and it was sort of dangerous to remove it. The surgery took eight hours. The doctors did everything they could to protect her face, but the tumor was wrapped around certain nerves that were irreparably damaged. So one side of her face sagged, and she had a, a crooked face. And so she asked the surgeon, she says, you know, well, will my face always look like this? And, you know, the surgeon said, I'm sorry. Yes, those, those nerves cannot be repaired. And she was silent. Sadness came upon her. But the young husband quickly interjected, saying, I like it. It's cute. And he bent down to where she was, and he sort of twists his face so that his lips accommodate hers, and he kisses her. Because he wanted to show her that her kisses still work. That's what husbands do. They stay. They joyfully, not begrudgingly, but joyfully twist their lives to accommodate their bride. See that? So to summarize, these sort of four broad application buckets for men, it's you lead spiritually. You lead in repentance. You wisely, shrewdly uh, provide for your family and thinking through that conversation, and you stay. You stay when times get hard. Now, how do you know if your headship is properly oriented towards those things? And here's how. Pay attention to your wife's aspect. Pay attention to her presence. See, the passage says in verse 27 that Christ's goal with the church is to present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. Husbands, do your wives look radiant? Like, have you helped her to look absolutely radiant? Like, is she alive and buoyant? Is she thriving under your authority and care? Or has your grumpy and cold manner squeezed out all the life in her such that her eyes have stopped glowing like they used to? I mean, I have seen men literally make their wives go clinically crazy. I mean, this is so tragic. Our marriages have to be different than the blueprint that our society has offered us. Christian husbands, use your authority to benefit, to bless your wives, not for your own profit. All right, let me just quickly conclude. First, your marriage is not for you. 
Your marriage is for your spouse so that together you may join God in his mission to draw out beauty and to take that beauty and to extend it to the whole world outside the walls of your home. And your own happiness is tied to putting the happiness of your spouse before your own. Very few people believe that and very few marriages are truly happy. You know, 99% of the marriages that are struggling that come to me are, can be attributed to something that I've, I've touched on today. So would you dare to just trust this ancient passage, you know, over your own intuitions, over your culture's blueprint, to trust this upside-down kingdom of Jesus? It's always upside-down. Now listen, husbands, wives, singles, listen, Marriage matters to everyone. Why? And this is where Paul ends it. Because it tells us about God. Paul uses marriage. The most intimate of relationships. Where a person says, I choose you. I choose you to give my power, my resources, my time for your good. And the Apostle Paul says that that is an illustration of what Jesus does for you. Self-giving love. He uses what is his for our good. When he calls us to self-giving love, we can trust him. He's not callous to something that he has not done himself first. He gave himself away for us. The love you get from your spouse is good, but it's not the fuel that you are meant to run on. The fuel that you are meant to run on is Christ's love. And you get to see that in this mysterious union. Jesus says, I know that you're a mess, but I commit myself to you. I love you. And Jesus arranged his entire self under God to the point of death so that you would be radiant, so that you would flourish. So let's do this together. Marriages. As, as Jesus, as, as Paul gives us the ethic, ancient ethic of marriage, let it be a reflection of that hopeful, self-sacrificing love. Amen? Amen.